Welcome to the Women in Industry podcast. My name is Kirsty davis Chinnock, and today I'm joined by Dr. Megan Ronane. Megan is the Head of Manufacturing and Industrial Strategies at Innovate UK KTN. Uh, you can find her on Instagram at Megan Manufacturing. And welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Thanks for having me, Kirsty. This is really exciting. Well, I've uh, spoke to you a few times um, yeah. over the last sort of six, 12 months. And one of the things that um, fascinated me about you is you've gone from an academic background, but you dove straight into the practical aspects of manufacturing. And your first degree was around manufacturing and ageing um, demographics, demographics even. Your second yep. was on manufacturing with a focus on the survival and resilience of the UK carpet industry. And then for your PhD, you stayed in the textile um, uh, sector and focusing on adaptation and competitiveness. So you're, you've been working with lots of industries from an academic and practical viewpoint, but working with them, looking towards the future, what was it about manufacturing and the future that really caught your interest? Yeah, so it all started, I did a geography degree at the University of Birmingham and we were doing about global supply chains and globalisation. And we were talking about how, you know, we don't make anything in the UK anymore. That, that was the perception in the lecture, shall we say, amongst the students in around uh, 2007, I think it was, 2008. So... Um, you know, the recession was hitting. So there was a lot about the demise of UK manufacturing and things like that. So, but I knew that we were making stuff. So I was from uh, Derbyshire. So I had Thornton's factory up the road. I had John Spedley making textiles. You know, I saw lots of industry around me. And also my husband, who was my um, boyfriend at the time, been together since we were 16, Joe, was a pipe fitter. So I knew we were making stuff and, you know, knew this lecture was a bit incorrect that we're now just a service economy and, you know, that's what we, we should be focused on. So um, I decided to do my dissertation, my undergraduate dissertation, because I had a passion for it. Just got something, something got lit up inside of me about, no, we do make stuff. I, I can see it. And also living in Birmingham, you, it's all around you in Birmingham, isn't it? Even from the city centre out. So um, I was like, no, I'm going to explore my hometown of Derbyshire to see what we make and how we make it. And actually speaking to the manufacturers and at the time approaching them, it was all about skill shortages. Um, like it oh, still is now. Nothing's changed issue. then. <laughs> <laughs> nothing's changed. So it was really, you know, to get their attention to talk to me as a, you know, undergraduate at the age I was like 19, 20 at the time, um, was with skill shortages. That, that's what they really wanted to talk about and aging workforces. And, you know, it was quite sad because at the time, some of these manufacturers would say, we're just going to close down when, you know, our co current cohort of people are over 55 and once they retire we'll just have to shut the company down and that's how desperate the situation was getting so um and I think what was different about me doing my undergraduate I then applied for funding to do my master's and PhD because I was so interested in I'd interviewed like 10 manufacturers in Derbyshire but I also made the effort to go around the companies you know not just ringing them or doing desk-based research I thought I have to be in the factories and actually learn about manufacturing myself to understand this world to be able to write about it so I'd spend a day with the managing director of each factory going through all the steps of the factory going through you know the strategy side the business side as well 
to then be able to really represent the company when I write about them. Now, I used to get told off a lot at the University of Birmingham and get told, you're not a consultant. Because <laughs> so, I used to always write from the perception of the manufacturer and really empathise and really understand their world and spend a lot of time with them. And even when I was doing my PhD, I, the only reason why I learned to drive was to drive to get a car so I could drive around Scotland interviewing manufacturers and spending a day or two with them. So for me, it was that passion of under, wanting to understand the practical side so that I could write about it and really represent manufacturing and make policy recommendations. You know, at the end of my thesis, there is policy government recommendations about how do we you know, support UK manufacturing. It's something that was really passionate for me um, because I think once you learn about this world as you know Kirsty being in it it's quite addictive and you are sort of drawn in and seeing you know people on the shop floor and how passionate they are about the world they work in you want to help and you want to support so I always knew that I was kind of then heading towards wanting to serve UK manufacturing and represent as best as I could but you've really got to understand that world and the only way you're going to understand it is by going around lots of different factories and lots of different businesses. I think one of the things over the years, um, and I've been doing this nearly 35 years now, is that when I was really, really young, the perception was that um, clever people didn't go into manufacturing, mm. didn't go into engineering, you know, that, you know, that they just had to run a machine. And yet working with an awful lot of people, the skills, the intelligence, the knowledge that they bring to their role the innovation that they push and drive within their role is absolutely immense. Um, but it also means that people who um, might struggle with dyslexia or, or something else um, and can't write you an academic paper on it, but they can, you know, reconfigure a, a motor on a line to make it run better. So it, it really shows that, skills aren't um, prescribed um, and that there are such a wide variety of skills in the UK and yet they're all nearly showcased in manufacturing companies. Yes it's definitely like from marketing all the way through isn't it to production and you know opening up our eyes to the wide range of skills and opportunities out there because unfortunately they weren't presented to me as a as a female at school you know I remember in our electronics classes the boys sat on one bench and the girls sat on the other and the teacher stayed with the boys for the whole electronics lesson and we just got it was like oh you just have a fiddle and you know talk amongst yourselves for the two hours in in tech class you know so hopefully that's changed now but yeah it was definitely different options back then well I'm older than you and we didn't have electronics classes um we (laughs) We, we all, it, it was fairly equal um, on a gender split, is in everybody had to do cooking one year and everybody had to do woodworking another year. Mm. Um, but it, there was nothing there. Computer sciences were only just coming through. Um, and if you were, you know, sort of considered one of the, the bright Oxbridge grad, graduates, you know, you, you were pushed down the law route and, and, and that yeah. was it. Um, when you were doing your PhD, you were also working as a project assistant um, at NW Textnet. Have I got that right? Yeah. So it's Northwest Textnet, which was a trade association in the, in the northwest of England. And I approached them. Um, again, I looked around for funding to take a three-month break from my PhD 
and then approach them and saying, look, I'm applying for this funding. Can I come and work with you for three months? And the reason why I did that was because it was becoming a real struggle to enter the technical textile industry. So um, my PhD, I decided to focus on the evolution of UK textiles from kind of making bedding and cloth and um, maybe domestic textiles and clothing to more technical textiles for like the military defence, medical textiles, healthcare, um, construction and those sort of sectors. But because the textile industry had gone through so much, um, you know, it had gone through a lot of pain of yeah. um, it being offshored to overseas. And we actually, you know, we actually offshored our even our textile machinery overseas. But also there was a lot of copying behaviour going on. So a lot of our IP was going as well. So it was quite a technical textile industry. is quite a secretive industry. They want to protect it. They're careful of who goes into their factories and things like that. So as a student at the time, you know, when I started my PhD, I was 22, uh, 23, didn't have much credentials behind me. So I had to build that credibility up in the industry. So I thought, right, if I approach the key trade association working with these companies that I'm trying to gain access into, I will then be able to then get them involved in my PhD research. So that's what I did. I took a break for three months and went and worked for Northwest TextNet. So, and it was really interesting to learn about a membership trade association, how that works, running, you know, quarterly meetings with members, uh, got to getting to represent the trade association internationally um, in Europe, because they were on a lot of European projects at the time, ERDF funded projects. So I would be uh, representing, you know, it was only a small trade association, it was only four employees, but so I got to be a key part in, in that team. And I gained access then to 40 technical textile manufacturers to go and interview and be involved in my research. And did you give them all a copy of your dissertation at the end as well? I did, yes. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and I even did a little industry report. So I tried to like basically rewrite it so it wasn't completely academic and was of yeah. interest to them and they could digest it hopefully over a coffee in half an hour. And one of the things that I think the UK has been really good at um, across most of its manufacturing industries is when they're... SME and some of those can be really really big SMEs but when they're SME owned there is looking for transformation there is looking for longevity uh, it does tend to be when it's you know investors who've bought a company that they'll strip it down but most SME owners and and even large company owners are looking towards the future and you've been quite involved um, across a variety of other organisations, Aston Business School, Make UK, uh, and looking at transformational um, aspects of manufacturing, being a transformational manager, being um, a, a regional membership manager, looking how you can give the best value to the companies you represented. What was it like moving from primarily textile-based manufacturing into all manufacturing yeah it's a learning curve so again having to really push myself out there so when I was at Aston University after my PhD um, I worked with 80 SMEs in the Birmingham and Great, well, Greater Birmingham area on an ERDF project so going and I've always gone into businesses so um, you know I, I much prefer being on a factory floor and that's when you get the best conversations rather than at a desk so um, walking around with them and learning. So um, Birmingham is always going to be close to my heart, working at Aston University. And I was also West Midlands Regional Manager for Make UK as well as the East Midlands, which, again, 
very different industries, what's in West Midlands and what's in East Midlands and what's in the East of England as well that I've represented and then also working in the Northwest. So the metal industry in Birmingham is absolutely incredible. And again, um, lots to learn. I don't, I, I know textiles much better than I do metals, but um, it's just absolutely inspiring, the different factories. But they all have similar themes or things in common that we need to work towards with the future you know in terms of business models strategy how to be competitive internationally supply chain strategies skills you know how do we attract and attain the next generation into manufacturing so I think um, I'm a very positive and optimistic person and I think that's what's driven probably my um, position in the UK manufacturing sector in my in my roles I've always looked at roles that are going to enable me to work on strategy going forward in UK manufacturing and to look at how we can support and help us to move forward in some of these key challenges um, and I do look back as a researcher to kind of go what can we learn from 30 40 years ago even 100 years ago to then kind of take forward is there something that we could try again or um, work from and how have we got to this position that we're in um, but I think it's really important that we keep moving forward to help us grow and we've now got the next challenge of net zero and lowering our carbon emissions and that's a huge thing for us to all navigate especially when we've still got challenges with skill shortages and getting the right talent in so how can I help and my team help at Innovate UK for example to help navigate that journey for each of us and what does it mean for all the different manufacturers in the different sectors as well. I think you've said something really important there. What does it mean? Mm. Uh, and, and the sort of prescribed thinking when you see net zero is, okay, so in four years' time, I need to have a factory that currently uses a million kilowatts of power a year to produce what we're doing, plus probably 40% more by then, without using any power. And that's not what it means. No. <laughs> but, but a lot no. of people go, well, how, you know, can't turn the lights on I can't run that machine and it's looking at baby steps so yeah. you know what energy efficiencies can you put in can you change that will that save 10 percent then do yeah. that okay you've reduced it by 10 percent can you put solar panels on that I'll give you 30 percent we're now down 40 percent can you put start and stop technology on your real heavy lines you can that save three percent and it's about these baby steps that are saving one, two, three, ten percent at a time, that will eventually mean that in five years' time, I'm still using one and a half million kilowatts, but my output is much more. And out of those, I'm only drawing six hundred thousand from the grid, which yeah. is using hopefully green energy. So yeah, um, exactly. and it's getting that that message understood. Because even as close as two or three weeks ago, I was at a manufacturing lunch and there was an MD of an SME going, well, we can't be net zero. I need to run the machines. And that yeah. perception is you have to run your business without drawing any energy. Yeah. And it's not just it's not just about energy as well. Is it? It's about materials that we're using, the circular economy side, about how can we recycle the materials that you're producing to then bring back into the factory. You know, when you think about the light bulb, the light bulb was first manufactured to break after so long so that we could drive consumerism and get people to keep buying light bulbs. So it was engineered to stop working after so many hours of being on. Now we're changing that and we're going, actually, how can we make that light bulb circular again so that, you know, we service it or monitor it so that we can know when we've got an energy 
you know saving light bulb back in and make it last longer so we're you know also we've still got to you know make money for businesses as well because if we're trying to reduce consumerism in terms of over consumption how can we make it that you, you build income streams by adding services into your business for your consumers rather than just making money from selling that one product how can you then you add the services into that as well and that's really important so my first washing machine um when i oh god 30 odd years ago was a friend's washing machine and he'd had it from his nan it was a twin tub so it was probably 10 15 years old when i got it and it lasted me for years it never broke down but then I wanted a fancy front loader. Mum was having a new one. I had hers. And I passed this on to somebody else. For all I know, his twin tub is still going. Every single front loading normal washing machine I've had in the last 10 years has lasted me three years. Mm -hmm. And then it breaks down. And you have, I mean, you know, we're back of a fag packet engineers, so we will change the motor (laughs) and do things like that. But most people will go, oh, it's 200 quid at Curry's for a new one just buy a new one and and Mm -hmm. you know if it lasted 10 years and you paid a thousand pound for it bearing in mind I appreciate you've got to be privileged enough to have the thousand pound to pay for it then it it, or, or 20 years for that amount of money you're getting better value you're reducing your carbon footprint but as you rightfully point out there needs to be an additional income stream for the manufacturer we can't just make everything last longer yeah and can you rent things as well so you know when i was at aston university i was looking at servitization business models so you know so rolls royce for example is power by the hour you know so they make their profit and money when the engine's up in the air by servicing and monitoring the engine rather than manufacturing it and they rent it out you know to the airline so um can you rent out your machinery or a product to, you know we're all renting now our cars our music our phones when you think about it from providers can manufacturers start to change their business model to become a service provider by renting things out if you, it's not going to work for all manufacturers and all products i understand that but if there is an opportunity to rent it out if your you know robotics costs fifty thousand pounds for a manufacturer to you know an sme to buy and they can't afford that fifty thousand pounds you know what's the service model that you can provide so they can rent it so we make it more accessible just like if we could rent you know washing machines back to what they used to do ages ago but you know that will make some kind of products more accessible that are maybe greener as well and also provide that income streams i think it's changing the perception of um renting consumable products is Mm. it's changing now i mean in the sort of 50s to 70s it was the norm that's what everybody did then in the 80s when we had high consumerism and all that fast pace moving forward into the 90s i know that it came with recessions and everything else it became more of an acquisition era and then renting was sort of like you know bright house charging you 300 um and now, as you rightly say, is coming back. Most cars are on HP. Mm-hmm. Uh, your phone, you get a new phone in an upgrade every three years, years with your package. You're renting it as part of that package. Um, and I think it's something that is going to be quite the norm again going forward. So moving back to you, Megan, you're now the head of manufacturing and industrial, industrial strategy at Innovate UK. So how does this role build on your previous experience? 
Yeah, so um, I've moved around in terms of, you know, trade association membership organisations to working and supporting manufacturers in university environments through ERDF funded projects. And um, this role is very much about, you know, bringing together the network, the ecosystem, the community of UK industry. So manufacturers with universities, with the catapults, with, you know, different service providers to come together about how do we move these agenda items forward in UK manufacturing, you know, shaping future funding decisions in government um, and funding programmes that we might have, or, you know, bringing together thought leadership and innovation. So really, we're about bringing together community to innovate and drive positive change in UK manufacturing. So we have various programmes and themes within our team. Um, so one of them being the Made Smarter Innovation Programme, for example. And we're currently recording this in November and this podcast will go out in January. But I have to thank Innovate UK and your colleague, uh, Dr. Becky Bolton, for coming to my uh, Women with Metal conference last month. And in turn, I was really pleased to attend the Women in Manufacturing conference that you were involved with in Innovate UK uh, alongside the Institute of Manufacturing at the University of Cambridge. It was a great day. It was a brilliant venue. But what do you want this to achieve? What do you want to get out of this for women in manufacturing? Yeah, so the Women in Manufacturing Initiative started way before me joining Innovate UK KTN, you know, by the team um, that started to do a research project as part of the Made Smart Innovation Programme into the gender and, and diversity in manufacturing to help with the digital adoption, you know, as part of the Made Smarter programme, looking at digitalisation and just simple things like VR goggles don't fit women's heads very well. You know, they're designed by men for men, really. So we kind of wanted to raise the flag, I guess, or the point that, you know, if we're going to have digitalisation in UK manufacturing, how can we make it more accessible for women? So that kind of started from a research project and the manufacturer worked with us on an, on 50 inspiring women in manufacturing in 2020, 2021. And it gained huge traction of women coming forward saying we really need a network and we need to actually help, able to support each other. So when I joined Innovate UK KTN in April 2022, I thought, you know, we need to take this forward and continue this. And the Institute for Manufacturing at the University of Cambridge have been really, um, they kept, they kept the project going as well. You know, been really involved with us on that. So we started kind of saying, OK, what can we do? What is actually going to be a benefit and a value to people in the UK manufacturing sector? And we'd held some kind of smaller workshops at trade shows. So like as part of Smart Factory Expo and Manufacturing and Engineering Week, where people could join the IFM stand to come along and learn about a women in manufacturing initiative. We've done a survey which has informed a policy report that um, Interact, which is a research centre as part of Made Smart Innovation, working with the IFM at Cambridge, have written, um, a, you know, about the, the actual statistics of women in manufacturing being only 26% of people in manufacturing are women. So really, I said I would like to raise that to 35% in the next five years. Um, I've said that out loud now and publicly, so I've got by that, which is a 2% increase each year. But I think it's, a, it's an achievable, you know, target. I'm not looking for like 50%. I'm just looking for us to move the needle forward as best we can. 
um, because there's so many benefits that have come out of our research on why we should be aiming to have more women in manufacturing, you know, for innovation and for different perceptions, for different leadership positions and, and what women can bring. You know, we, we, we bring different energies, you know, there is masculine and feminine energies in all of us, but bringing together diversity and then enables different decision making and thought leadership and different ways of doing things. Um, it also then attracts more people. If, if people can see more women in manufacturing, then younger generations are going to think, oh, there's a place for me in that sector as well, and I can join it. So that's really important. So, I mean, moving forward, we're going to try and do an annual conference um, as part of the Made Smart Innovation Programme. So we're already hoping for next September time. Maybe we'll probably move it so there's less, it's less busy. It was quite a busy time when we when we did it. it just so happened we like hooked it onto advanced engineering to try and help people do less travel across the UK to join us. Um, so you think about our timing for a conference and location. It was absolutely brilliant. The NCC, you know, you need to ask everyone is that a good location again to have it. It's quite easy to get to via car, but not always, you know, via public transport. But we need to think about those things. So uh, making it accessible as possible across the UK for people, and also increasing the virtual side of it. We did have a virtual element to the conference as well, which was really important for me to increase accessibility as best as possible. Um, and then we're also looking at working groups, you know, so developing people um, into working groups that are interested in, you know, improving maybe the social media aspect. So we've got this 100 day challenge at the moment where um, lots of people are engaging in posting every day as a women in manufacturing 100 day challenge to kind of improve the perception of women in manufacturing and also improve our understanding and learning of women in manufacturing. And I'm already learning so much seeing what people are posting from their everyday jobs you know, so we can learn about their worlds and their perceptions of manufacturing through their images that they're putting out there now on social media. Um, we need a group to look at the statistical side, the policy side, you know, how do we get the government interested in this to help some initiatives going forward as well. The educational side, you know, getting schools and colleges involved. We need probably a working group just on kind of how do we engage the community better, but also the allyship as well. So we did have some good male representation at the conference but I would love to improve that you know so for next year so how do we improve the allyship to make people feel comfortable to attend a women in manufacturing conference we did try and change the name a little bit to you know just really emphasizing the changing perception title you know ran by or led by the women in manufacturing initiative so it didn't feel like just a women in conference ourselves because we do need that allyship as well a lot of SMEs are ran by men so, you know, the male managing directors and CEOs need to understand the issue um, and the different challenges there are for women to then make their working environment more inclusive. And a great example of this is um, micro spring and press work down in Redditch. So Neil Matthews has written a white paper for, on women in manufacturing in his company because he recognises it's so important for the future direction of his company with recruitment, but also retention, because their research and their white paper showed that women are actually leaving the sector. So it's not that we're just challenged by the fact we're not getting people to enter the sector. We're getting a lot of women leading, leaving the sector and we're getting them leaving the sector in leadership positions as well. That was a fantastic white paper. I remember um, sharing it on LinkedIn and I sent it to a few people as well. And I think it's important to say that there is a lot of progress being made, but manufacturers don't tend to shout about things they do anyway. Um, and I'm aware of uh, a stainless steel um, stock holding company in the West Midlands um, and in the last I think it's five years they've closed their gender 
gap now. And I think they've got 48% women in the company, which oh, wow. is absolutely fantastic. I know that because their MDs told me that, but yeah. they've never promoted that as far as I'm aware, which is why I'm not saying the name because I don't know if they want me to. But, you know, I'd love to be retweeting that and sharing that on LinkedIn. Um, but again, it's it goes back to if we don't show that the, the diversity is out there, people won't necessarily know as a young woman that yeah. there is a role for them. Yeah, exactly. One very last question, because we're over time, which I knew would happen. <laughs> I am um, a chatterbox. Sorry, oh, so much. It's dreadful, isn't it? But people are going to be sitting outside their office going, we shut up, I've got to go in. <laughs> Listening to us in the car. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? So the best piece of advice is to work like a woman from Mary Portis's book. So, um, you know, that absolutely changed my whole career, my whole life. Um, unfortunately, I was reaching burnout. Uh, back in sort of 2018, 2019, trying to work really like a man, you know, trying to fit into the manufacturing sector. And there's not, you know, if you want to work like that, there's nothing wrong with that. But it just didn't align with my own values. I wasn't being myself. Um, I was trying to be someone that isn't me. And I read Mary Porter's book. I actually listened to it in a car journey, driving to an event while I was part of Make UK. And um, it just completely transformed how I was thinking and how I then decided to behave and be myself and really learn about myself and invest that time into self-growth and development. So, um, yeah, so work like a woman, you know, be yourself if you want to be, you know. And a woman doesn't have to be just feminine or, you know, I know I'm wearing pink now, which doesn't really help the case, but, you know, being girly or, you know, anything like that. You know, a woman is very varied. But I think the, I think the point is that we actually have to embrace ourselves as individuals. I think that's the point for me that I'm trying to get across when I say work like a woman. If you are a woman, you know, just work like you are yourself and be authentically you, really. I really like that. I think um, everyone, as they start on their path, will try and fit into the boxes that they sometimes perceive they should be. It might not be overtly said, it might be encouraged. Um, but, it, you know, it's very much a square peg in a round hole, isn't it? Oh, thank you yeah. so much for joining, Megan. I have to say to everybody, please do check out um, at Megan Manufacturing on Instagram for her Scavenger Sundays, where she showcases something made in the UK every single week there's some absolutely brilliant posts on those. Um, and please do get involved. Give her a share. Give her a like. And we hope that you'll carry on promoting UK manufacturing, Megan. Thank you. Thanks, Kirsty. It's been great. Love speaking with you.